Carlos Del Sordo, and this is another Zoomcast podcast, whatever we're, we've been doing this so long, we don't even know what we're calling it, but I'm around someone with someone, uh, Olympian, lawyer, film producer, uh, has put together what will be one of the most impactful videos, documentaries in our, in my history of rowing, comes out in July. I'm with Mary Mazio, and this, I get chills just saying her name because I'm so <laughs> excited about where this is headed. Alex, Alex, I'm going to remember that line and just share that with my husband. <laughs> share it. Share it away. Mary, I I get, I'm, I'm, I love rowing and I love what it's done for my life. And I'm really excited about what it's going to do for the other men and women and young children when they see your documentary. But listen, we, we usually do these interviews. We, we usually talk about rowing backgrounds and then we talk about a hot topic. Now this hot topic that we're gonna be talking about today uh, has greatly shooken up our world. I mean, not just the United States, but like on a global scale. We're gonna get into that later. But you are an Olympian. You are 1992 women's double skulls, 11th place. I don't care, you're better than me. <laughs> you are an Olympian. So, you know, you went to Mount Holyoke, all right? I, I wanna know, and the audience wants to know. I eat a champion. Pie eating champion, Montalio College. There it is. Like, I want to know, give me your background in rowing. When did you get started? And how the heck did you get into the 92 Olympics? Because the women in that in that Olympic team are powerful women in today's world of rowing. I mean, Yaz was on that team. Yes, yep. Jayla yep. Donahue, Donahue was on that team. Like Carol Feeney. Yes. Yeah. Whole host of extraordinary women. So I went to Mount Holyoke. So for, let me preface this. Needham High School, go Rockets! Um, Needham High School, I literally was probably cut from almost every team that I tried out for. I had no eye-hand coordination, right? And so when you have no eye-hand coordination in high school, you know, you, you're on the 2B, you know, baseball team, softball team, you're throwing the javelin badly, you know, on the varsity. Okay, I did make a varsity sport. Um, and so I go off to Mount Holyoke and um, I see the rowing coach. So it's all women. And this man comes up to me and he says, um, I, I had danced for many years. And he said, uh, you have big legs. <laughs> and I'm like, what the? <laughs> uh, and I was like, you know, what of it? And he said, why don't you, you know, we're, we're recruiting for um, the rowing team. Like, why don't you come down and try out? And I was like, I was not, I was not fit. So I go down and he has us all run a mile around the lake. And I start off doo, 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 and I am like DFL or maybe third to, to last. And he came up to me. He's like, you know, we have 150 women coming out for a novice aid or whatever. It was a lot of kids. That's crazy. And he said, so maybe you don't need to come back tomorrow. I literally don't remember what I said to him. Somehow I talked him into letting me come the next day. And you know, our sport, Alex, you've got to get up. We had to get up at 5.30. We had to run, you know, a mile and a half or two miles to the boathouse in the dark. And so by the end of that week, everybody had quit. <laughs> <laughs> so I literally became an athlete by default, totally. And you know, at Mount Holyoke, it, I, I, like for what I lacked in eye hand, I had sort of extraordinary strength and VO2 and all those kind of things that you start to develop, right? And so I began rowing at Mount Holyoke and loving it. And the only reason that I kept rowing after college 
is because my entire career, I never won a medal. Like sometimes oh. I get like an or a wooden or, but we were not a threat <laughs> in our circuit at all. Although I would row in the summers with people like Holly Metcalf wow. and um, um, sort of Spike, uh, Spike, Chris Thorsness, these Olympians. Were you going to Boston? Like, were you just going no, downtown? Pioneer Valley, Pioneer oh, Valley Rowing oh. Club. Wow. Um, and so I started rowing in the summers with really these iconic women. And I remember being in a race and I'm like a sophomore, maybe in college, and I'm in an eight. And now I'm in the back, right? And there's Holly and Spike and like really Olympic hopefuls. And I, I squeezed myself into that boat, you know, in the bow seat or whatever, or two for it. And I remember looking across and we tied this was, this was, um, God, I can't remember, but I, I remember looking across and I see Carrie Graves and I'm like, we've just hung with a boat with Carrie Graves. So for those of you who don't know, right, she's like the God, she was the most powerful kind of three-time Olympian, statuesque. We all thought she was like seven feet, eight feet tall, right? Like that's how she appeared to us. And I was like, wow, this is really interesting. And so I never got invited to a heavyweight camp, um, much as I would try. And, um, began sculling. And that is really, I, I went to law school. Um, actually, sorry, let me, let me step back. Because of Pioneer Valley, I was invited to my first U.S. team, not as a heavyweight, but as a lightweight. And so I went- so, so what year is all of this happening? You really have to ask that. I have to. <laughs> this is the 80s, baby. This is the 80s. <laughs> So, um, so I row for Bob Gillette and Andy Anderson and, and yeah, in a women's lightweight eight. Um, I remember my nickname from that summer. Nobody else remembers my nickname, which was the force. Oh, that did not stick. And I'm still, you you can tell I'm still bearing the scars of that today. (laughs) I sort of got introduced to the U S system and I was headed off to law school. Mm-hmm. And I chose my law school um, on the basis of, okay, there was a rowing community there, right? And ultimately, um, I went to Georgetown Law School, and I was um, fortunate to live in France for a year. I got this fellowship. Wow. And I wasn't sculling, right? But I was still working out, and I remember walking past this boat club in Bordeaux. And, you know, I was alone. I was not with an expat community, and knocked on the door, and they let me in. And I started sculling. And by the way, sculling very badly, right? You're a novice. And um, I began sculling. And then I came back to the U.S. to finish law school. And I just started sculling. And I was like, we'll see where this goes. And ended up being the single for the World University Games, right? Like the 3V of national teams. Um, And then I got another fellowship. This was in 1988 at that time. and I was like, okay, I could really like, do I go for the 88 team? What are my chances? Probably slim to none. So I went to Korea um, where I coached um, the Olympic development team in uh, just like this weird, you know, and oh, hilarious side note. Um, I end up uh, competing in the Korean Olympic trials as okay. an American. No, no, it gets better. So. Uh, there is a concept and and it is very it's very serious about losing face and 
I had some friends who were Korean that were sitting in the stands and I'm, I'm like edging ahead of the national champion and I actually end up defeating and I have the medal to prove it. Um, the national champion, which had I been Korean, I would have represented Korea in the games. And apparently everyone in the, in the, in the stands were, were like, she's rude. Doesn't she like, she, that's rude. Right. <laughs> and I didn't realize that the concept of, of, um, saving face extended really that profoundly. That was a lesson to me. So I'm, you know, I'm like, doo, doo, doo. they put a huge medal around me and I, I had no idea how obnoxious I was that day. Um, but I, I, gotta, I gotta stop you. I have to take a breath. <laughs> like, this is crazy. You're telling me Mount Holyoke, you, you go to Georgetown Law School, which I'm assuming you're only out of Potomac, which is right there, like at the river or TVC, like whatever the two. And you just casually throw in that you were in Bordeaux at a rowing club, you learn how to skull, and now you're in Korea. Like, I, I am trying to map out your journey here. And like, you're all over the place. It, it's peripatetic. And no, you know what it is? It is, my mother always said, and I'm a firm believer in this. She's like, you know, Mary, whenever the bus comes, you're there, right? Oh, so it's wow. like, you know, sometimes luck will show up and you just have to go with it and just, you know, hold your breath. And if it's scary, you still do it anyways. So in any event, quick, you know, bringing us fast forward, I, I come back to Boston and I really start training in earnest in the single and there's no hiding in the single. And um, in the beginning, I was very inconsistent, sometimes lightning fast, other times dog slow. And my first movie came about because one of the women that I trained with at Boston Rowing Center, BRC, was a woman by the name of Chris Ernst. She was a three-time Olympian and had caused this great outcry um, at Yale University over unequal treatment of women when she had been there. And so my first, very first movie was actually about what Chris Ernst did at Yale University, which was kind of shocked uh, many institutions into understanding what Title IX was. But in my own career, Chris said to me, I remember, you know, I would get cut and cut and cut and cut and cut. And back in those days, you know, you get invited to camp and then a list goes up, right? You get day one, the yellow sheet, and everybody runs up to the list and looks at it. Oh, shit, I'm going home. <laughs> um, and I was always on that first level. Shit, I'm home. Um, and and over, the, over the years, right, I'd be like, okay, maybe I'm not on the first cut list. Maybe not, I'm not on the second cut list. Okay, here it comes. And this was two years before the games. Um, and I remember one of the coaches said to me, you know, Mary, you, um, we think you have funny stories at dinner. Uh, we like your tights, you wear pink tights, right? But we don't think you're big enough, tough enough. We just don't really think you have what it takes. Like you're spending a lot of time, you're a young lawyer, like you should really rethink this. And, um, and I remember, thinking about it and I said to Chris Ernst at the time who was she was you know I was sort of a rookie at this point on the scene and she was a veteran and I said Chrissy she said you're back did you get cut and I'm like yeah again <laughs> and um and um she said well you know let's go work out suit up and I'm like I, I think I'm going to clear out my locker at BRC and she's like what what she's like oh. first of all you are so fast and so talented, and until you believe it, it's not going to happen for you, right? 
And I, and I said to her, I was like, really? And the second thing she said to me was literally life-changing. She said, how come every time you lose, every time you get cut, you have an excuse? Whoa. And I said, I don't, ha I don't have an excuse. <laughs> uh, and in fact, she was right. Every time I lost, instead of analyzing why I lost, analyzing why I might have been slow, right? Why am I so fast some days? Why am I so slow on other days? Um, I didn't take responsibility for my own performance. And that was a game changer. So I looked at her. She's like, suit up. We're going to lift. Then we're going to go run stadiums. We're going to throw up. It's going to be excellent. Then we're going to go to breakfast. And that's exactly what we did. And two years, right? And so in the space of a year, um, I began real, you know, like getting really focused. I went to a sports psychologist because I was so distracted and distractible and learned to just like, you are there, you are racing in the moment. What does that mean? You're not looking around, where's she, where's she, where, where am I in this equation? And so I, uh, my performances, you know, boom, just like that, right? Just, just dramatically escalated with both mental training. Um, there was a coach that came into town uh, who was, had been working with the German team, Hartmut Buschbacher. And um, I was just outside the system because he was working with the sweep athletes and I was a sculler. And I remember he said to me, I am going to create um, customized workouts for you. You are a fighter, but you have a really shitty aerobic base. And the only way you're going to make it is if you beef up your aerobic base, you basically have to do every workout that I give you. So I'm out there on the Charles, you know, with the bungee wrapped around my single, just, you know, <laughs> and, um, and that kind of training coupled with the sports psychology aspect was honestly transformative. So, you know, right. then you sort of, you catapult up and, you know, you're at a point where they kind of have to take you right on the, on the team and to the games. Um, but um, the most extraordinary piece out of all of that experience is not that I was a member of the team or went to the Olympic Games, which was very, very special, um, but what I learned in the process, which is you are capable of more, but you have to drill down, be in the moment, analyze where you are weak, because if you don't do that, you will never be optimized, you will never be strong. And it, that has made me a better, not just an athlete, a better person, um, yeah. a better mother, like ultimately, right? Um, and so I learned so much from what Chris probably thought was an off-the-cuff comment. And um, yeah. Can I, so you're, you, this is insane. Like Hartmut, I love Hartmut Buschbacher. Great. Love that connection. But, you know, you, you were a lawyer, you were producing a film, and you were training at the most elite level, like, what were you, what were you, do were you a lawyer by day and a rower by night? Like, what yeah, was I, I, I was, I was not producing at that point, but I was, um, uh, I was working as a lawyer and many of us at, at Boston Rowing Center and a lot of the scholars, we, we had day jobs, right? Because this is before sort of the current three times a day, we were two times a day. Um, until the summers. And then when we began um, working with Igor Grinko, the Olympic coach, he was yeah. a three time a day guy. And so into the games, I took the summer of 91 off right at world championships. And then going into the Olympics, the year um, I 
uh, stopped working, I don't know, November, December, right? So you're training full time through yeah. to the games. So. Uh, and you were producing films. I mean, you were producing. Not then, not then. Oh, not nope. then. Nope. So this is um, just lawyer. You were a lawyer and you were training. You, you have a husband, you, uh, you have children. Like at what point was all that kind of happening? Oh, that, that was not before the games. <laughs> 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 that was all after the games. Although my husband, was um, a standout on the men's lightweight team, the U.S. men's lightweight team. So, of course, we met, you know, um, and later sired a uh, two rowers, which is hilarious. And my daughter is um, uh, just, she was in the U23 system um, as a collegiate athlete. So, uh, yeah, it's all, you know, where did, sometimes where did, row? Where, did, where did she row? Yale, Yale University. Yeah, wow. And when did she graduate? She just this year. So oh, she, this year. Wow. yeah, she's in her second summer right now with U23, uh, although it's all virtual. So um, I think she'll give a, you know, she'll give it a whirl and see how far she takes the sport. But honestly, she's has far more talent and guts and, you know, uh, strength, um, which, you know, maybe I'm a bad mother that I wish I had that too, but she's amazing. <laughs> and I, I, I love it. Now, after the 92, I mean, you know, I know you, most Olympians, having interviewed now 20 or 30, I call of you, you're Olympians, you're better than all of us uh, at rowing. You're so modest, like rower, I, like rower, Olympic. Yeah, now listen, because you say, oh, I got 11th, it's not a big deal. But to be even in the Olympics is a big deal. But you got 11th. So what happens after your career there? Like, you, you, do you just hang up the oar and move on? No. You know, interestingly enough, I thought about staying out. Um, but you know, we had a coach, uh, Igor Grinko, the sure. workload was, um, you know, it was a brutal workload. And I, I remember thinking to myself, boy, this is, do I stay out? Um, and my doubles partner at the time, Cindy Mathis wanted to race the single, uh, although she, she, she has come full circle because now we race together. Like we're, we're forever and in, in, inseparably bonded. And by the way, she is polite and thoughtful and kind and quiet. And I'm like totally the opposite. The opposite. <laughs> so we were not friends when we uh, raced together at the games. And, and what began, I mean, we have a lifelong bond that um, is such a special part of my life and is a, is a ray of sunshine. And, and I don't say that in a really Pollyanna way, but to be able to, you know, what are we now, 20 years out, um, uh, be able to get into a boat, we shove off the dock, right? We've been rowing together since the games and we race together. It's a really special um, um, part, of my, part of my life um, yeah. that came out of that and with somebody that was so different from who I was, right? Like she's so kind and thoughtful and yet she eats nails for breakfast. She is so talented in the following year she in 93 she was a single scholar and she she was sixth place sixth in the world right and it was always sort of she was outside of the system always again for her size sort of discounted and so she is a piece of steel and um and where is she at today so are you close uh well we row we still row and race together so we row three times a, a week uh at cambridge boat club and yeah we do erg workouts and she'll send me you know, she'll be like, all right, AT today. All right, AT today. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> One minute pieces. All right, here we go. And that's, so, an, that's amazing. Having yeah, so, so we, um, 
yeah, we, we race and it gives us a great, you know, we race together and it gives us a great excuse to go have like coffee with cream right after the workout. So, sure. uh, right. So that's, uh, that's, that's Cindy and just a remarkable person. And again, when you look back at some of these, these experiences, it was less about being at the games and more about learning that you are capable of so much more than yeah. what you think you're capable of, but there's a big but. You cannot make excuses. And I wish I had learned that earlier on in my athletic career because, um, you know, I, I would have been, I think, twice the athlete, frankly. So anyways. What a, what a, I mean, so I, I love getting context, right? Because you've, you've developed a bunch of movies now. So I want to transition into at what point in your life did you say, I need, to, I need to start producing film. I need to start getting involved in this. Because again, like I don't know, having seen or having heard your life right now, I can't pinpoint a moment in your life that said, I need to do this aside from Chris Ernst, who made a big impact on you. Like, when did you start producing and, and why? Like, why did you start so, doing that? So honestly, like particularly in some of these camps, right? Uh, rowing camps or rowing in the summer, you have lots of workouts and then you've got nap time. Mm -hmm. And instead of napping, which I probably should have done, I was writing screenplays. And I was writing screenplays around strong women, three-dimensional women, funny, smart, heavy, you know, irritating, um, because so much of what you see on screen are sort of beautiful two-dimensional characters, right? Yeah. And what a shame that is. And so I started writing screenplays and they ended up, uh, I remember coming back from the games and sending a script to the head of Paramount with an Olympic t-shirt. I, I shit you not. And I get this call saying, we need five more copies of your script. When are you next in LA? And I'm like, okay, this is a joke. Like it's one of my friends. <laughs> in fact, it was Paramount. And so, you know, I started uh, having a number of meetings around developing a feature film and this is scripted, right? And I'm thinking, oh God, I'm gonna have the chair with Mazio on the back. Like this is gonna be the bomb. Yeah, little did I know that everybody in Hollywood has a screenplay, right? And I'm sure, you know, and, and you get these meetings and they're like all these smiles and you're so talented. And I'm like, yes, I'm so talented, right? And you know, they're taking your script and deep sixing it, right? The second you leave. But, you know, what that taught me was I was like, boy, it's really taking a while. And I was a lawyer at this point. So the games have passed and I'm a lawyer. And I remember saying to my husband, um, who was my boyfriend at the time, fiance at the time, you know, I, so much has been given to me. Mm. I have been the beneficiary of others' largesse in so many ways. And I need to do something different. Like what, you know, I'm, I'm now living this very yuppified, um, latte drinking, go into the office. I know the guys in the garage, so I get to park my car in the garage, right? Like it is a, life uh, that I had never um, experienced previously, and by the way, was like most excellent at the time. And yet I was feeling increasingly out of touch. And so I said to my husband, I'm like, I'm thinking like I'll either go into politics, right? And by the way, I'm a, I'm a young lawyer, and so I'm doing a lot of pro bono work in re with indigent tenants, most likely. Um, sorry, most often. And I would walk into an apartment and it would be abysmal conditions, right? And yet the apartment rates were similar to what I was paying as a student. And I remember thinking, okay, wait, there's no heat, no hot water, 
cockroaches, peeling paint, subhuman conditions with rents that are usurious. And I started doing a lot of landlord tenant work for uh, tenants in danger of being evicted. And, you know, at first you sort of feel good, you know, you kept somebody in their home and maybe you got them a bonus check. And, and yet after a period of time, I was like, this is the same story, a different face. What more can I do on a policy standpoint? So I was like thinking, okay, am I going to go into politics um, or do I do it more creatively, like through film? And then I was like, all right, do I have any skeletons in my closet? I don't know. Uh, film school. So um, I started going to film school very quietly. Nobody at my law firm knew. And my very first film was a film called A Hero for Daisy. And that was based on Chris Ernst and the Yale women and the revolt that they engineered back in the 70s around gender inequity. And uh, the film sort of took off, honestly, like a rocket in ways that I didn't expect. And certainly Chris Ernst did not expect. You know, she is a very private person. She was not super excited with all the attention, but attention she got. And, um, and that really launched my career in the documentary world. So what I had originally envisioned as a feature film career has now become, God, knock on wood, you know. Uh, we opened our doors in 2000 and here we are in 2020 and- uh, 50 Eggs, is that what it's called? 50 yeah. Eggs, your yep. production company? So this is crazy to me. I mean, what a story. And it just, it keeps getting better. This whole like guppy lifestyle. like Just, wait till, I, just wait till I have a gin and tonic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, this, this, this story be, will become more apocryphal. <laughs> your, 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 I guess, your ability to, to, to see yourself from the outside is important. You know, you recognize that you were living a specific lifestyle that you weren't connected to. And having seen the things that you saw, it's amazing how you were able to pull that together and then make a career out of it. So it, like, I, cause I, I, I see that in West Baltimore, we're in West Baltimore and I see the things that you see, that you used to see all the time. And uh, for you to go that direction is powerful. Um, beyond a hero for Daisy, I mean, how, how, how Walk me through that snowball effect, because you've done, what, nine movies, I guess? Nine yeah, I mean, honestly, it has been, you know, you blink and you say, where did the, where did the lightning strike? You know, and, and, and for A Hero for Daisy, you know, that film got so much press, right? Like New York Times. And, and I remember thinking, I don't know how I'm ever going to, you know, it ended up airing on ESPN. I mean, of all places, right? For wow. women's go-girl sort of project. And I remember thinking, I don't know how we're going to outdo this. And then um, ESPN said to me, we had great viewer feedback, like let's do another. And so that led to Apple Pie, which was about athletes and their mothers. And so we had, you know, Shaquille O'Neal, Grant Hill, who is now my co-producer on A Most Beautiful Thing. He was featured in the film. And fun fact about Grant Hill, in 92, he was on the dream team and we walked in with those guys. And of course I totally knew who Grant Hill was of course, and he totally didn't know who any of us were. So it's just so, so like such a wild thing that we're now working so closely together on this, on this new project. But um, in any event, you know, here, here we are and apple pie had, you know, even more press and more attention and that segued, and then I kind of veered out of sports for projects that were coming in that were just sort of extraordinary in terms of social impact. And 
And so to be able to do projects, we did a project called 1098 about young people from under-resourced areas competing in a business plan competition, Harlem, Compton, all wow. points in between. And to be invited into these neighborhoods to fully understand the structural impediments that we are seeing people talk today and to be able to, I sort of view my job as, as building the scaffolding for other voices, for voices that you typically don't hear. And each one of our projects, so that was, you know, Tom Friedman wrote about that project, you know, the best film you'll ever see or the most, right, most extraordinary heartwarming film you'll ever see in the New York Times. And, and I remember thinking, boy, how are we gonna, and we, you know, we, we ended up uh, doing some really extraordinary things around that movie. And I'm like, okay, how do we beat this? And then we do a story that I had been chasing around a team of undocumented teenage boys um, 14, 15, 16 years old that built an underwater robot out of, you know, sticks and clay and toothpaste and ended up defeating MIT at this competition, right? And so I was like, okay, what an amazing project to not only showcase overcoming obstacles in the underdog, but to explore um, what, you know, sort of these undocumented communities. And that film, we ended up partnering with the Obama administration on that. And the film raised, you know, more than a hundred million dollars in public and private commitments. And, you know, we had an extraordinary partnership with NBC Universal and Viacom. So each, like each one of these projects was starting to um, kind of have deeper and deeper impact in terms of change. And, you know, we, we then, uh, I'm thinking of, of uh, I Am Jane Doe, which again, this, this was a fortuitous project. It was about a very grim reality, sex trafficking, particularly sex trafficking online. And we dive in um, and the film becomes the tipping point for um, bipartisan federal legislation uh, about online responsibility. And again, you know, you're, which by the way, was opposed by Google. Our project was opposed by Google. And yet the legislation passed and I was so proud to just be um, affiliated in all of these films with voices from communities that were under-resourced, disenfranchised, and it became incumbent upon me. Like it is very clear that we have talent everywhere and we have charisma, humor, work ethic, talent everywhere. It's access and opportunity that is not everywhere. And so why is that, right? We live in the most um, lucrative, you know, um, industrialized country. Why are we permitting our citizens and children, um, why are we allowing them to live in substandard developing world conditions? How is that possible? So I think with this newest project, A Most Beautiful Thing, uh, you know, Arshay Cooper has taken me on this incredible journey, um, inviting me and, the t and his teammates and families invited me um, into these communities to bear witness to what it was that they wanted to say. And again, I just view my role as I build the, I build the scaffolding. I like build the, the uh, bully pulpit um, and then the voices of that community can ring strong and true. And Arshay's voice is profound.
And so I feel honestly, like I have learned more by, you know, um, by embarking in this line of work than remaining a lawyer, right? Um, and it has so enriched my life and my understanding and these young people and their generosity of spirit over the years. Um, you know, I stay in touch with these young people. One of, one of um, the young men, he was, um, he was homeless on the south side of Chicago, ended up going to Harvard and Yale and right, like, he, I remember he called me up, he's like, so Mary, my housing fell through at Harvard, like, can I crash with you for two weeks? And what became two weeks became, be, be, you know, was the whole year. And, um, and we worked, you know, this was last year, right? And, and so we would talk about issues that um, I think now a larger part of America is recognizing um, and is also understanding the urgency to act. But I feel so lucky that I had some insight into this um, and into this structural impediments, the racist ideology that has, that has hampered um, what would other otherwise be, you know, sort of extraordinarily able, talented, hardworking people, their starting line is, you know, seven miles behind the starting line for, for a kid from Darien, Connecticut, or Weston, Mass, or, you know, Marin County in the, in the Bay Area, right? That, that there needs to be fundamental reinvestment in these communities. You know, there is a fire in your belly that is providing a microphone for these communities, right? And it's obvious, and it just, I'm, I'm trying to understand this, it was because of your physical presence in that environment that created, you know, back in the 90s when you saw it, right, when you were helping out those communities, it was you having to see it and experience it. You have to. You know, because to get otherwise, it, right? otherwise, you cannot believe it. I remember I was a law student in, uh, at Georgetown, and I was going into places, you know, uh, Anacostia and um, Southeast DC, and I was paying, I can't remember how much I was paying for my rent, and being blown away that these families would be paying double what I did, and they have no safety, no, um, and they're living in conditions that are shocking and shockingly inequitable. And, and, and I remember thinking, boy, th there is a need for lawyers, right? Like everybody loves to, you know, pile on lawyers. But um, for me personally, I felt like I could do more. And I should. You know, there's this, uh, when we interviewed Arshay on Coaches Yelling, there was a moment where he said, when I saw rowing for the first time, I fell in love with it. And it was the erging in the, in the room and they went on the water. And I know you know the story because you, you, you built this documentary. But then we heard the same thing for Maurice Scott, who we interviewed, and he rode the first time at Bachelor's Barge in Philadelphia. And this is an interesting dynamic. They, the two of them, needed to see rowing with their own eyes and feel it to fall in love with it. Whereas white privileged individuals, if you want to call it that, need to see those other communities to understand and appreciate what's actually going on in those environments. So both sides need to see that those living conditions or they need to see the sport to appreciate where they currently are or where they could be in the future. And you saw that, right? Like well, yes, I mean, our, our sport has been stubbornly uh, inaccessible, stubbornly 
non-diverse. And when I think about my own sort of, I never quite, especially like after college, I never felt quite welcome. Like I wasn't a Yaley. I didn't go to Harvard. And, and I felt, and I think rowers generally, you know, we're a unique and quirky people, right? Um, I don't think people mean to be exclusive, but there is an exclusive air. And when Arshe talked about the healing that he experienced um, by rowing, which is rhythmic and healing, right? As opposed to playing football or soccer, um, he, made, he, he made such a compelling case for why our sport has to be accessible by all, right? For all of the lessons and all of the reasons we love this sport, why is it that we, we are, again, stubbornly undiverse? Um, that just has to change. And R. Shea's mission is, and he's got this great mission for the Olympic Games in 2028 for athletes of color, right? Want to not, win only, not only is it incumbent upon us to share these beautiful resources and to share our sport, but you know, only good things are gonna happen when we diversify our athlete pool, right? Um, now, not everybody's gonna go on and become a national team rower or an Olympic rower, but the lessons that you and I learned through the sport are lessons that every young person, no matter where you come from or what zip code you're in, you should have that opportunity. And we, as stakeholders in the sport, um, need to understand how fundamentally and structurally unfair the system is and do something about it. So what, so we, we've, done a, we've done a show on diversity. What are tangible things that we can do as a, as a sport to broaden the diversity, and open the doors more. Are there actual things that we can do? Yeah, there are a couple. And, and I think it's interesting because Row New York and Philly City Rowing have just put out guides for boathouses. What can you do to be more inclusive and diverse, right? Um, there is so much more each one of us can do. Like one of the limiting factors, and, and Arche is really the expert because he is he is traveling to communities both known and unknown, right? And certainly what we're hearing is some of the key impediments, transportation, yeah. right? Um, transportation to and from the river, that's number one. Number two, unless a young person is exposed to the sport, it's not, it hasn't been, you know, it's, it's not contemporary, it's not on TV, it's not cool. It's like, you know, it's as Arshe describes in a most beautiful thing, the only reason why he signed up for the sport was because of free pizza, right? Uh, his coach, Ken Alpart, had, you know, a video monitor and Arche and Alvin and, and uh, uh, Malcolm, they, they saw the monitor and they're like, uh, that, that's a white person's sport. Like, uh, you know, we don't, we don't do that. That's not who we are. We're basketball, football, right? And so I think you have, um, we have barriers that, that we should and ought to be breaking down. Um, part of being a civilized society, right? And I think right now, um, a lot greater percentage of our population is waking up to the fact that you cannot just say, I'm not a racist. You cannot just say, uh, well, of course, we all deserve equal opportunity. The question is, what are you going to do about it, particularly if you're a person of privilege, right? And, and this is really interesting for me because I came very close to never see, seeing the inside of a college, right? My mom was on food stamps for some period of time. Wow. Now, how did I get to college? 
this, you know, th my skin color gave me far more opportunity than had I been a young person in the same situation. And I remember being um, a young lawyer and going into Boston City Schools. They had like lawyers in schools, or I forget what it, was, what it was called. And I went in and the class was like, it was like LA law. We set up a moot court and they're like, objection. And you know, this judge, she was this beautiful young woman and she's like, you, sir, are out of order, right? And these were kids from, you know, Roxbury and Dorchester. And I looked around and I left the classroom and I sobbed. And I sobbed because what I saw in front of me was such talent and such passion and such skill and opportunity. And yet I knew leaving that class that the graduation rate for those young people, maybe they're 50%, right? And so I was like, shit, like, what can I do, right? And so honestly, I came to a, to a decision tree, right? Do I, do I leave the law? Do I like take this road? I could fail, I don't know. And the, the path has evolved into one which for me to be, um, you know, again, uh, just helping raise the profile and amplify somebody else's voice, job done. So there's this thing that, you know, one of the things that Arshay and I spoke about was building heroes and creating, making rowing fun. And, and that's a lot of what Rower's Choice is doing. We're making a visual, but there's this thing that's in my head. You had Common and you had Grant Hill work with you on this film. What? were their reactions to rowing. So like those guys are celebrities, they're superstars, and I would love, and you would love to have them in boats, right? So what, what was that conversation like when they saw it for the first time or experienced it? Honestly, they, uh, frankly, rowing was the backdrop. This was a positive story about young men from the west side of Chicago, right? And when you look around at the portrayal of young men, young women of color, in art, in media, you see the same stereotypical tropes, um, vestiges of racism, right? Where those stereotypes are actually quite harmful. And here we have a project where you have young, young men and women, by the way, from these areas that are human and funny and flawed and articulate and um, and who explore their they're relatable. Own they're, they're relatable. And, and, and so it is a positive portrayal in a way that, that there aren't many pieces out there. I mean, there are, some, there is some media, some entertainment, right. That are, that do constitute, um, really positive, uplifting, you know, non, not, and I'm, and what I'm saying, like not after school special, right. Um, and so both were drawn to the project, I think, because of our Shea Cooper, right? I mean, you see him in the film, you, you understand who he is. Our Shea is a leader, as, as Grant Hill says, and I'll send you our press release. Grant, Grant has a quote in our press release that he has been so moved by the leadership of our Shea Cooper um, and that his name is one soon everyone will know. Wow. Wow. I, we, we think about creating rowing to be bigger and better. And it's like a storytelling. Do you think that our sport, aside from this, cause this is going to impact, like you said, 
other stereotypes in the world. Like this is, this isn't just about rowing. Do you think rowing needs a feature film to be at the, at, at, at the highest possible level to gain more energy and exposure? Um, uh, hmm, that's interesting because there are several, right? There's Boys in the Boat, which is around yeah. the corner that George Clooney is gonna, um, you know, be directing. There's a movie called Swing that is coming out at some point next year. I just heard about another, oh yeah, there's um, another film that Sports Illustrated Films is doing um, about uh, the crew that we um, profiled in A Hero for Daisy. Um, oh. And uh, it was actually the 19, the first Olympic team maybe, or first national team that that film is gonna be on. So I honestly, I don't, I don't know the answer to that. I, I don't know the answer to that, but um, certainly from a, an inclusion standpoint. Um, I think our film, of course, is the story of Arshay Cooper and these young men from the West Side and what Arshay and these young men are now doing for their community, mind-blowing. So from an exposure and exposing the sport to a wider audience beyond sort of, you know, our typical, you know, membership uh, in the community, I'm, I'm really excited because Arche is, um, he's a leader, he's charismatic, and he's a game changer. How has um, the delay in the launch affected you and, and the, the team? So we were headed to South by Southwest, right? Really prestigious opportunity yeah. to debut the film. We had some crazy early press. I mean, you know, Brian Tellerico at Roger Ebert, um, you know, uh, Deadspin, those cool cats over at Deadspin loved the film. And um, part, you know, we were heartbroken. We had so many events. We were supposed to be opening theatrically in March. We had so many events on the ground. Uh, our Shea was like gonna be booked for the next year. However, that being said, none of us could have predicted uh, the events of the past couple of weeks. Um, and R. Shea's message and what he has to say in this movie is as resonant as ever right now. We need his voice, we need his leadership, and we all need to do whatever the fuck he says needs to be done. We need to do it. Interesting. You know, it's, it's, it's funny how the world works. Sorry, are we a profanity-free outlet? Oh, God, no, please, Kurt. Well, shit, damn, fuck, whatever. I mean, I like, I like what you're saying. I mean, this is a big moment. I think it's funny how the world works. Launching later is going to benefit the country and the world even more. I mean, it's, it's, it's going to be on the top of mind of everybody. And it's going to be, I think it's going to make a bigger impact than having launched in March. At least that's my, my gut. Well, and when you see the film and you, and you see what Arshade does and how he interacts with members of the Chicago Police Department, your head will spin 360 degrees off its axis. And here is someone who is thinking creatively around um, police misconduct, uh, police brutality, um, what's happening in his own neighborhood. And again, I think Arshay and these other young men in the film um, bring extraordinary wisdom and, um, and honestly have infused me with courage to work harder. Wow. I need to do more, we need to do more. 
And I think we all have to be willing, those of us that do enjoy privilege, whether it's financial or the color of our skin, um, it is time to reinvest in communities that have been disinvested in whatever shape or form that may look like. And, you know, let's get to work. I'm a, you know, it's, it's a side note. Tomorrow, so we're in West Baltimore. Tomorrow I'm hosting a barbecue for all the neighborhood people here in West Baltimore. And uh, I'm opening up the doors and we're gonna have a big cookout and we're gonna have all the boats out. So I'm hoping, fingers crossed, that there are some people who say, oh, like I kinda wanna learn about this. And then I'll say, go down to BRC. They got a great program. Dan Shank is, is running the show down there. Go, go see it. Um, you know, there's this thing that you used, that you said many times in this is, how do we beat this? Like, okay, we did a great job at the first film. How do we beat this one? How do we beat this one? How the heck are you beating this one? Like, is your now focus more on community driven things or do you already have your next project in the pipeline? Well, I, I've got a couple teed up that are um, different marginalized communities that have been underlooked and um, whose stories aren't out there, right? Mm -hmm. And so, again, we are gonna dig in on this. So for example, my film, I Am Jane Doe, that was an 18 month campaign that culminated not only in legislative response, shocking when you can get the left and the right together, mm. you know, and I had a front row seat to that, which was extraordinary, but you know, internationally, the OECD, right, which was responsible for implementing the Marshall Plan after the war, the OECD has taken a position on the basis of our film around human rights abuses happening online and how, um, you know, protecting, um, shielding companies from all liability from harm may not serve that purpose. So, so to be able to um, use a piece of visual media and bring every relationship talent asset. Um, mm -hmm. Again, I just view what I'm doing is I, I'm just, I'm just, you know, building the risers. I'm just building the platform and for people like Arshay Cooper, for people like Jane Doe, number one, two, and three in our last film, for people like Oscar Vasquez, um, and all of the other young men and women that were undocumented in our film before, right? Like this is, this is a privilege and it's my duty as an American um, to, to it, this is how I view sort of my life. Like as an American, we all are American. We all are citizens. So how do we, um, how do we make that American dream accessible to those who can't see it, who don't have it, who have no access and opportunity to that American dream. How do you, how do you keep up this energy? I mean, geez, like, <laughs> your support system must be incredible. I mean, dude, okay. oh, no. you I am, I am the worst. I'm like, did this get done? Did this get done? Did this get done? And they're like, oh, shit, there she goes. Again. How many, uh, how many employees or people do you work with in your production company? So we're like, like round numbers 10, we're typically four full time and then anywhere from six to eight to 10 uh, part time, depending upon where we are in the season. And then of course our, on our films, our films expand dramatically. I think we probably had 250, 300 people work on A Most Beautiful Thing, right? Wow. Now of course they're not working full, full, full time at 50 Eggs, but yeah. Now, I mean, with, um, I, I, I had my question, um, how have your, have your children really like jumped into this bed too with you? I mean, have they really like uh, a lot of support? So my kids 
you know, I'm a dork like any other parent, right? To your teenage kids. And um, when we did Underwater Dreams, I was on Stephen Colbert. So, right, the Colbert uh-huh. Report. So all of a sudden the kids are like, oh, mom's cool. All right, she's, I was cool for a day, right? My kids, I think, um, I view very much like parenting. You don't, want to, you don't want to slow the boat down, right? And I am a very demanding, pain in the ass kind of person, right? And both of my kids, um, now they just graduated from college, but my son, Jamie, is headed to DC to work on policy. He, is, he has had this policy newsletter that has had followers from like Jeb Bush Jr., the chief counsel at City, you know, and he's writing from the hinterlands of, of Wesleyan University, the most progressive place on the planet, right? So he is very um, excited about what is what can he do from a policy standpoint. So again, I, what I love is that he has been infused with the great privilege has come to him, right? Um, what does what debt is he going to now repay? And my daughter, although she is focused for, you know, on her, on a rowing career in the short term, she very much has been studying um, international relations and again, is very service oriented at the moment. Now, who knows where that will go, but I think fundamentally, they are both such good, thoughtful people and with great sensitivity to the world around them. And so uh, they know that, that, um, you know, to, to whom much is given, right? Um, y- you got to do something. Mary, your story is incredible. And it's, uh, it's funny. Our sport does a very bad job promoting the people that change it greatly. And you're changing it every day. Now, who, <laughs> my last question for you, um, who plays Mary Mazio in the Mary Mazio story? What actress out there plays you in, in, the, in the starring role? Honestly, honestly, I am a minor character in the <laughs> lives of so many. And I, I'm, I'm being completely sincere. You know, Arshay Cooper directed, for the most part, right? He directed the journey of A Most Beautiful Thing. The young men and women in Underwater Dreams, this was their journey. I was just the photographer, right? I'm the bystander. And so I, what I view my skill set is, is like a little bit of a Pied Piper, right? Like, like we got the shining star, right? We have extraordinary, really ordinary people doing extraordinary things that, that more of the world or, you know, more people need to know about. I'm like assembling the troops to like, you know, uh, start the parade, if you will. And so I very much don't, I think I've got special skills in terms of making things happen. I would, oh God, that would be so obnoxious if I think that I need a movie about me or that, oh God. Well, you ask, anybody, that, ask anybody that works with me and they're going to be like, does she freak out at a typo? <laughs> she does. You said it yourself. You are, you are building the scaffolding for the voices that need to be heard. And you're that scaffolding. So maybe, maybe the person playing you is the scaffolding. I don't know. <laughs> Funny enough, but you are, you are a wonderful uh, interviewee. You, this has Thank been you. nothing but a fun time. I have, I have several questions after the, we, we close out the interview. Um, but, but Mary, is there, is there anything that you want to say to the people that are going to watch your, your, your movie coming up? Is there one yes. last thing you want to say? Yes. I want to say three things. One, June 30th, Arshay Cooper's book is going to be republished by Flatiron under the name, wait for it, A Most Beautiful Thing. <laughs> Available at every bookstore on Amazon 
buy the book. He is extraordinary. Second thing, our movie comes out July 10th. Please come to our website, A Most Beautiful Thing. We, as we have on several of our social impact projects, we've committed that 50 cents on every dollar of profit from box office and film screenings will be donated back. Um, so that will be happening and, and we hope that you see the film. Um, third, there will be announced some philanthropic efforts around expanding the sport. And we hope those that are in a position to help expand the sport, whether it's money, whether it's energy, whether it's a car, um, please help uh, on that on that front. Oh, Mary, this has been wonderful. Thank you All for right, being part of this. And uh, <laughs> for those watching, you, you heard her, you heard her. Now, July 10th, June 30th, get out there, make an impact. Thanks for watching. Thank you.